All right, welcome to another session on our podcast. Let's talk UNLV on KUNV. You with co-host Keith and Renee. Renee, this weather's so beautiful. I know you got some, you had some big plans this weekend or this past weekend. Yep, went out and did some walking and did the routine grocery shopping, car wash, uh, all the chores. But the most important, exciting piece was basketball. We in the playoffs. Who you got? You know, I'm a Miami Heat fan, so that's oh, my number one choice yeah. in the East. So, okay. And we're the number one seed, and we represented against Atlanta. Sorry, mm-hmm. Hawks fans. Yeah, we, you're looking we, good. Yeah. Put, we put it on you. I, I'm a Lakers fan. Uh, we're not in the playoffs this year, but I'm rooting for the Suns. It's time for Chris Paul to get his ring. I could be okay with that. I was I was torn with between them and the Bucks last year because both I like. Giannis too so yeah but either one of those I could see Chris Paul and be happy with that but as long as they're not paying the heat yeah I root for them yeah well you already got one championship team this year the Rams okay so you know you know I'm greedy (laughs) greedy (laughs) I need all my teams to represent same in the same sports season I wish you the same success You know, I'm used to you talking about some daredevil stuff, but it's that no, was sort of no, a tame, a no, tame no. weekend for for you walking the dolls, grocery shopping, doing yep. chores, dogs. and in front of the like, TV. Wait, wait, I don't have no pets. <laughs> no. Oh, I'm I'm confused with my own house. <laughs> yeah, that's your house. <laughs> my own nightmare. No, no, I am not a pet lover. In fact, when I walk the trail, I'm like the one that's like, please, dog, don't look at me, don't look at me. <laughs> Don't lick me. Don't, 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 don't come to me to pet you. I don't want you. Okay. You you just stay over there on your leash with your dog handler and I'm going to enjoy my walk and enjoy the sky. But uh, no, but I have a beautiful trail. I live in Henderson, as you know, and I just like feel like I'm just one with nature out there. So nice. it, it really is a, a great time. But we're here to talk to our guest. Who's our guest today? Yeah, we have Dr. Magdalena Martinez, who is the Assistant Professor, School of Public Policy and Leadership. Magdalena, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. So excited to be with both of you. I know we go way back in so many different areas. So just maybe just walk us through maybe your career path and how you laid in the current position that you're in at UNLV. Absolutely. I am what I like to refer to as a um, pretty much a Nevada native. Came out here um, when I was about 14, but prior to that would travel back and forth. And uh, attended UNLV, graduated from UNLV, proud rebel, and went off to get my graduate degrees and was fortunate enough to come back and work here uh, first at the chancellor's office or at the state agency for higher education as an assistant vice chancellor for academic and student affairs. And then at UNLV at the Lindsay Institute, and now I have a dual appointment at the Lindsay Institute and the College of Urban Affairs and the School of Public Policy and Leadership. Excellent. Excellent. So out of all of those roles, which one has been your favorite? Because you've had an interesting career path. Oh, that's a great question. You know, I think the the position I'm in right now is really the best of all worlds. As I mentioned, I have a dual appointment with the Lindsay Institute. The Lindsay Institute is a research um, organization here on campus that was created as a result of a generous gift through the Kirkacorian Foundation about 11, 12 years ago. And um, I get to do really interesting things there, particularly as it relates to education policy and really taking the work that we all do here at the university externally, right, to decision makers, to community members, and really serving as a source of 
education and information dissemination and all the good work that we're all doing, not just at the Lindsay Institute, not just at my college, but university-wide. And then the teaching part of it, you know, being a faculty member, a professor, I just love working with students. I've primarily worked with graduate students. And it's just, it's just every semester is like a new chapter, right? And it's so exciting to, to start a new chapter and to meet new people and to hear about graduate students' aspirations and dreams. I just love to dream with them, really. And what are some of the current projects that you're working on? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, one of the projects I'm really excited about is this um, joint project with the Brookings Institution from Washington, D.C. We have a pretty close connection to them because here at UNLV, we also have the Brookings Mountain West, right? Mm. Right next to the Lindsay Institute. And so we do a lot of cross-pollination, I like to call it. One of my favorite business words. Yeah, I love it, too. Um, and so uh, we work with Brookings Fellows, and right now we're working on this really exciting project called the Nevada Economic Recovery, and really looking at it from different lenses, right? Um, I just partnered with a, a, a colleague of ours at the business school, and she is uh, bringing in frontline interviews from service workers during the pandemic. And so what I'm doing with undergraduate and graduate students is we're looking at six domains, six different areas of um, individuals or groups, right, including business, social services, housing, uh, education, unions, trying to understand how the pandemic has affected our community at a local level. And so this project, you know, we're kind of at the we've hit start. Uh, but it's it's starting to really gain some momentum. So we're really excited about the information we're gathering. And we're, we're not gathering it just for information's sake, right? We're hoping that this information can help inform conversations around public policy. We're hoping that we never have a pandemic like we've experienced. But we know that there will be crises to come in the future, right? So we want to be able to be a resource for our community and our decision makers and say, look, this is what worked. This is what didn't. How can we think differently about how we serve our communities? And so what's some of the preliminary information that's being that's coming out of this work that you wish decision makers would have known, <laughs> you know, once the pandemic hit? Right. Well, to be sure, like no one expected this, right? And right. we were all scrambling mm-hmm. um, initially. And so there's a lot of reflection. Now we've had enough time for um, organizational leaders and even individuals in the front lines to be reflective about that experience, right? And one of the things that we know, one, one good takeaway is that federal funding mattered. It mm. helped. It helped. It helped ev- alleviate some of the financial uh, burdens, some of the... Um, um, housing issues, some of the um, food insecurity issues, um, education issues such as having Student technology. Student loan deferment. Absolutely. Mm, yeah. So really it was across the spectrum. So federal funding matters. And when our government turns to us and says, we're listening to you, we care about you, it matters. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then concerning like the federal allocations that sort of came to Nevada is part of your work or through the work of uh, the Lens Institute to tra- uh, to track any of the funding disbursements and how they are used for the intended purposes or the impact of those funds coming to the local economy? That's a really great question, um, Keith. And um, we have great organizations such as the Brookings Institution that have created trackers, national trackers, to see 
basically where the money went, right? Follow the money. Our focus is more on a qualitative perspective and really understanding the experiences of the individuals, be it organizational leaders or frontline workers, and how they made sense of that that those types of interventions, right? And so, yes, they'll touch on some of that. Organizational leaders will refer specifically to specific type of funding. So for instance, in education, we know higher education K- K-12 received a certain bucket of funding, and certainly that that is infused into our conversation, but we're particularly interested at the state level, right? What can state and local leaders learn from this and take away in terms of implementation, for instance, of those federal funding, right? And so those are some examples that we're working on right now. Do you have a sense if system schools fared better than public independent schools? Is there a sense that uh, schools that were able to make the decisions solely for their school based on the leadership that they had were able to either make faster decisions, better financial decisions, because they have to think about the broader public institution of higher education for that state, or did system schools like UNLV, mm-hmm. um, a part of INSHI, Nevada System of Higher Education, did they fare better because they came together collectively to look at not only what's best for my institution, but how does this impact college students, you know, who are all um, working to achieve uh, a degree um, or uh to, to enhance their personal professional goals at a college level? Boy, another great question, right? Mm-hmm. And I think at the root of that question is issues of governance, right? Mm-hmm. We have different ways of governing mm-hmm. higher education and K-12, right? And here in Nevada, we have one of the most centralized governance structures right. in the nation, <laughs> both at the K-12 and higher education. And there's been a lot of policy movement and momentum around that. But what we know is that despite numerous bills introduced to really rethink how we govern education from a K-16, they haven't gone far, right? Because it is a dramatic change. To your question, no, we don't have, we can't point to specific examples where we could say, okay, centralized systems um, operate it better than decentralized systems. Because we are such a unique country in terms of how we govern K-16, Every community is going to be different, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, does size matter? I think it does. And I think that when you have a ginormous, for instance, K-12 system, right? We have the fifth largest school district in the nation, yet we're like the 28th largest metropolitan area in the nation. So um, there seems to be a misalignment. We expect LA Unified to be the largest school district because it's one of the largest metropolitan areas in the nation. Same thing with New York, Chicago. But here... um, there seems to be a misalignment in terms of scales, and we see what the outcomes of that is, right? A highly bureaucratic um, organization that does not give a lot of autonomy to individualized schools. I would not be surprised, actually, if if uh, in the end we were to see some uh, advantages and disadvantages to highly centralized um, governance systems. So I have you know colleagues that work at uh, you know public. Uh, institutions are not a part of our systems. And my assumption would be that their morale would be different, would be different mm-hmm. uh, because many of these schools, they stayed open. Right. They did not close where, you know, some would say we had uh, a year hiatus and that maybe they were reduced services or we did not have to come to the office. And so we were able to maybe take care of some of those personal home fronts because we had um, uh, no choice but to be, you know, to be closed and removed from the campus. Um but when you speak to them, 
they are just as agitated <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> or they report that communication was mm-hmm. lacking or that there was no transparency, mm-hmm. that they're still struggling to have programs come back fully online. Mm-hmm. And um, having that conversation with them, like I said, I was really shocked because I just thought they would have this kind of chutzpah of we stayed open. We know what's best. You know, it was important to our community to stay um, open and have the uh, full range of services, but not so. So I, I'd be curious to know, like I said, uh, you know, eventually if there'll be a survey or a, a study that would begin to look at how these schools, um, you know, fared better or they were pretty much in the same situation because it was, as you said, something we couldn't plan for. And to some degree, there was no playbook that we could, you know, operate from that we could make, you know, faster decisions. So let's talk about some of the educational policies that you're interested in studying. Tell us more about those. Sure. So early on in my work at the Lindsay Institute, I spent a lot of time looking at, for instance, um, English language learner policy, um, which uh, my predecessor, Dr. Sonia Horsford, had laid a really strong foundation previously to her departure to um, other great opportunities. And so I I picked up some of that. And um, another stream of inquiry has been on issues related to um, school financing, right? So we commissioned a a school study, school financing study, to see um, how we were faring nationally. Um, Another area has been within the higher education realm, looking at um, access and equity issues, particularly for underrepresented students. Um, So it really is a a diverse uh, area of uh, work that I've done. Hispanic-serving institutions early in my career, I really looked at Hispanic-serving institution and what that means. Now I'm focusing more on not specific policy issues per se, but more the policymaking process. And um, right before our state legislature converted to a majority female legislature, I was doing interviews with women. And so I seized on that opportunity to try to interview as many women in the legislature as possible. So a lot of my work right now in writing and thinking has been around uh, women legislators, particularly women of color. And it's been really exciting. Um, I'm learning a lot, and I'm hoping that other people will find it useful and inspiring, right? Now, before you actually came into this current role, you know, when you're on the outside looking at decision-making and policies, you have one perspective. Mm -hmm. But now that you've been able to sort of get into this work and look under the hood and tinker with things through, you know, surveys and current data has been collected and and reading some more publications – what has changed in your perspective from being sort of on the outside and now that you're sort of in this field and in this work and immersed in it day to day? Right. So um, prior to transitioning to the university, I was um, at the State Agency of Higher Education, the Chancellor's Office, where I was really on the front lines of uh, interfacing with a lot of policymakers. And uh, for those of you that have worked in the legislature, for instance, you know it is fast-paced, right? And the Chancellor's Office is really charged with um, 
uh, being a resource for the elected Board of Regents, right? So um, in many ways, that, that is our primary charge. But during the legislature, that's where we get all of our funding, right? So there's a tremendous amount of attention focused on um, specific committees. And so um, it is fast-paced for those folks that do that work. Uh, I, I have a lot of uh, sympathy for them because <laughs> you really work around the clock. Um, and not unlike some of the work that you all do here, too, because you're interfacing with federal agencies um, and having accountability reports one after the other and just uh, responding to the to the request of multiple stakeholders. Right. And so it's almost around the clock type of type of work. Um, and I tell my friends and colleagues that being a professor is one of the most privileged positions we can think of, really, because it's really an opportunity to stand back and ask meaningful questions and really think um, thoughtfully about um, how the work that we do intersects multiple areas, not just theory, but practice, right? So um, it, it's different insofar as I really have an opportunity to think long-term how I can work with colleagues, both internal to the university and external, right? And so like that Brookings project that I described, that's an example of that, right? If I was if I was at a nonprofit organization or a local municipality, I wouldn't have the luxury to be able to reflect and interview people and look at data through multiple lenses because I got to get that money out to folks that need it ASAP, right? And so I think that's one of the big distinctions that that now I can ask questions and really uh, work with colleagues, not just here at the university, but nationally to hopefully help inform future conversations or short-term type of decisions around public policy issues. So for the female legislators, what's really the driver? Is it something that happened to them in their childhood or when they were, uh, you know, mothering or othering? And and uh, this, you know, opened their eyes that this was an injustice that they wanted to change. Are the decisions influenced by, you know, following the money? I mean, what what? helps them, you know, creatively think, this is part of the change effort that I want to see? Oh, that's a great question. And I feel like you've started to touch on some of the articles that I've recently published. And so my approach to understanding policy making is much more of a, um, it's a, a little bit of a different approach, not so linear, not so rational. Many theories approach policy making as, you know, A comes before B, C, D, and so on and so forth. And I approach my work from lived experiences, right? And so really trying to understand, you know, how do women of color in particular come to prioritize certain policies? And how do they make sense of their own experiences? And how does that inform their overall policy ways of thinking, quite frankly, uh, policy ways of being, right? And so you're absolutely right. Our experiences absolutely inform who we are, how we think about the world, and how we approach life. I'd say that um, women of color here, legislators in the state of Nevada, are typically much younger, are motivated by um, different experiences. Um, it's it's not uncommon for women, or even well, primarily women, to wait until they've raised a family, till they're near their end of their career, to say, "I will now step into public service." Not universal, but. You know, um, in our state legislature, we're a part-time legislature, so there ain't no money involved in that. In fact, you're putting out money. But these young women of color, it, that's not the case. They feel a greater sense of urgency to step up. They may be early in in their career, 
or just getting to mid-level, but they feel that, um, that urgency to step up to the plate. And I get chills just talking about it and thinking about it. And to really bring their voice to bear and bear witness also of this process. So you're absolutely right. And so do you find that these women of color legislators, did they have a mentor? Did they have sponsorship? I mean, kind of what was the, you know, I guess, uh, who, who were the 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 village of people that, mm-hmm. you know, promoted them, that encouraged them, that, you know, said, okay, this is how you get this done. This is how you run a successful campaign. This is how you uh, fundraise. I mean, yes. all those, you know, components. Yes, yes. And, you know, I'd say the majority of women of color legislators that I interviewed were the first in their family mm. to run for public office, right? There are a few exceptions, um, but they were the first and so they, they, it was a leap of faith. They jumped into it. And I can remember one particular um, legislator saying, I had nobody support me but my mother. Okay. And uh, she took a leap of faith. And she didn't know how she was going to do it, but she knew she, kept, she had to keep moving forward. Right. And so um, politics is um, something that I won't even pretend to understand because um, it, it really is not just one way, right? It, it, it ebb and flows depending on what's going on, who the players are and who's upset with who that day. Um, but these women had to prove, for instance, to their caucus members that they were worthy of investment, right? And so it wasn't until perhaps after a primary that they were on top that, you know, the caucus maybe came forward and said, okay, Now we'll give you our formal endorsement, which is not uncommon, right? Um, But but in terms of mentorship, um, other women have been great sources of mentorship and men, right? Um, And it's really um, connected to the party usually, right? Um, Most of the women that I interviewed uh, were Democratic women, some Republican women, but I really haven't delved into that data um, yet, I hope to. Um, and so certainly there's a vested interest in a party to make sure that their members are prepared and ready to enter policymaking spaces, right? Um, but they certainly confronted a lot of the challenges and a lot of the sexism, right, that, that we all face outside and a lot of the racism as women of color, right? And so they had to contend with that in a very graceful and uh, mindful way because they understood that um, their calling was greater than what they were experiencing right there. And I just one more follow-up question. So, Renee, so, you know you've been asking questions for the I last know, 10 I minutes. I know, I know, I know. You see Come why on. it's difficult, why she chose me <laughs> so she could just take over the whole interview? But go ahead, Renee. I'm going to tease no matter what. Okay, so, but did they learn that grace that, that grace under fire, grace under pressure, or somehow it just kicked in? I mean, had, had their circumstances in life been preparing them or somehow they learned it from their other communities of color, um, you know, or through their faith community or something, and they were able to, you know, ride that wave in a different way? Um, or like I said, they just, you know, kind of just got baptized into politics. This is how it is. You got tough skin. Keep, keep moving. I think it's a little bit of all of the above, right? Certainly women of color have been confronting issues of race and racism and sexism throughout their entire lives. So they were not surprised when 
people would confuse them with other black women or other Latina women, mm-hmm. right? Um, in fact, they they you know they took it gracefully and said, "Why, thank you. You have a nice day too," rather than correcting them in that instant. Um, and so I think that. There's so much to be said for the lived experiences and the communities from which we come from, right, that have taught us how to navigate these different spaces, spaces not created for us or in mind with us, right? And certainly uh, state legislators is one of those places. In fact, it's been places that have created policies of exclusion. And they're very aware of this, right, based on my interviews, these women of color. They understand that. They're, they're not kidding themselves, right? But at the same time, what I found most inspiring is that despite that fact, they were still inspired to go and trust the system, okay? Trust the system that in the end, if they were there, they showed up, okay? And they built coalitions, not just with people that looked like them or thought like them, but with all people. There was a sense of belief in a democratic process, in a democracy. That is changing before our eyes. But I feel like they really had a unique perspective, okay? They weren't afraid of this changing democracy. They wanted to embrace it, and they wanted to come up and say, look, we're an actor just like you are, and we're going to work collectively. And related to that... Leadership. Mm -hmm. And I want to maybe just highlight the work that you did with the Kellogg Foundation. In particular, I call it finishing school for for individuals for presidency at minority serving institutions. Mm -hmm. Could you maybe speak to that work and maybe some of the the key components of recommendations for those who have aspirations of leading a minority serving institution such as like UNLV or others around the country? Yeah, okay. So I haven't talked about this in a, a few decades, but I love that work. I love that stage of my, my career. Uh, back when I was in Michigan, um, the Kellogg Foundation provided a very generous grant of $10 million um, to prepare the next cohort of presidents at minority-serving institutions, including historically black colleges and universities, Hispanic-serving institutions, and tribal colleges and universities. And so they partnered with three national organizations, HACU being one of them, Hispanic Universities and Hispa- Hispanic Association of College, Colleges and Universities, NAFIO, which is the counterpart for HBCUs, or historically black colleges and universities, and AHEC, which is a counterpart to tribal colleges and universities. And essentially what these three organizations did in partnership with the uh, Institute for Higher Education Policy in Washington, D.C., was create a year-long fellowship program for individuals that were a few steps away from the presidency. However, the focus was on minority-serving institutions. There are a ton of president-like prep, you know, finishing schools for um, white-dominant universities, right, particularly the elite universities, but very few at the time focused on MSIs. That was such great work. I met fantastic individuals. Every year was a cohort, and this was a three-year project of, I believe, 30 individuals, right? And so many of those individuals have are at the helm of minority-serving institutions now, right? And so basically the idea was, how do we think differently about serving and leading at a minority-serving institution? Okay, we know that our elite institutions, you know, our universities of Michigan, our Berkeley's, 
We know that those are the ones that people look to as the most elite, and um, they, quite frankly, they have a lot more resources than minority-serving institutions. So the focus of this program was really to um, rethink leadership, how it's practiced, how it's understood, and the individuals at the helm of these type of institutions, which were all people of color. Renee? Powerful, powerful conversation around policy change and just improving how we collect data, use data to improve and inform decision making in the local community. What were some of your takeaways from today's discussion? This is so good. I, I don't want to end it because I'm saying we need to have her back. But I think about the MSI task, for, task force work and we could bring some of these presidents and have a you know presidential roundtable to learn about how they ascended to the presidency for serving at a minority serving institution and what were some of the ways they had to strategically think about governing, think about community engagement, think about student success and working with academic affairs and student affairs and what a great you know discussion that would be. And so timely to to you know to the work that we do, and so I could just go on and on and on and on, and to also know that uh, we didn't get to it this time, but uh, Dr. Martinez talked about uh, during MSI week about you know if you want to show me your values, you want to show me what matters, you show me in your budget about you know uh, equity, diversity, inclusion, and I want her you know to actually review the student life budget. And to say beyond professional development, you know, beyond funding positions, which is our standard way of saying we value these things mm-hmm. or we provide scholarships, you know, for, for different identities. But beyond that, are there other ways that we need to begin to put on the radar Are ways that we're saying that we are supporting these institutions and these efforts? Um, so this has been a very enriching conversation. What was your takeaway? I mean, I echo exactly what you said, the sentiments and, you know, especially around as UNIV begins to really understand and embrace being a dual MSI and HSI serve institution, you know, how do we get more action oriented in terms of changing our behavior and actions in terms of how we look at instruction, how we look at how we support students, how we define success, and then following that with how do we reconsider how we allocate our resources and prioritize our resources to support that work in a sustainable way. Dr. Martinez, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks so much. It's been so much fun. Great to see both of you. All right, that's a wrap. For more Let's Talk UNLV, be sure to follow us on social media where you can get the latest updates on the show plus great behind-the-scenes content. We're on Facebook at Let's Talk UNLV Podcast, Twitter at Let's Talk UNLV, and Instagram at Let's Talk UNLV Pod.